Okay, good to be with you folks. Welcome anyone who's visiting with us. It's great to have you in church. We, we love, as a church, taking time to dig into the Bible. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. And because it's the Word of God, amazingly, it speaks to us every time. It speaks right into our heart and our situation. No matter what our week has been like, no matter where we're at in life, uh, God has this way of taking the words of Scripture and applying directly to where we're at. So let's pray that he'll do that again. Uh, in our lives today. So just open your hearts and uh, let's just pray. Father, we pray as we turn to the Bible just now that you would speak to us. We pray you would speak right into our hearts. You know everyone in this room. You know the lives we're living. You know the hopes and dreams we have. God, would your word come so poignantly, so strongly into our hearts. God, I pray for anyone today who is far from you that today, even as they're hearing these things, God, you draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this is a true story. There's, there is a, there is probably still alive a couple, um, who way back in last century were very concerned about the, the talk of nuclear war and the threat of, you know, the missiles and the armory and, and the Cold War was happening. And, and because of their paranoia, they were thinking, where do we want to live in our retirement so that we can avoid any possibility that if there was a nuclear war that we'll be safe? So they traveled, they traveled the world, they researched, and they looked all across the world, and eventually they narrowed down to one island where they decided they would relocate in their retirement. So they moved there. That winter, as they moved there, they sent um, Christmas cards. It was 1981, they sent the Christmas cards to their friends and family to let them know that they've arrived in their new home, the Falkland Islands. And it was, it was just like within months there was the Falklands conflict. The one place on earth that they had narrowed down where there would not be any conflicts. <laughs> and I guess the question we've got is, is there a safe place on earth? Is there a safe, is there some way you can go on earth, some place you can be on earth where you're entirely safe with no threat, no risk, total peace? That's what this psalm is all about. We're going through the psalms. We're in Psalm 46. And that's, I think, what this psalm is speaking about, a place of safety in the midst of a world in chaos. Psalm 46, its, it's introduction is to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth. That's a kind of, it's a kind of cool rift that they sang this song to. I don't know, I just said that. A song, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength. A very present, say very present. Very present help in trouble. Where's God in trouble? He's a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, and though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, and though the waters roar and foam, though, it's, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. That's a, it's a musical term you find in the Psalms. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God is with her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come and behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with, uh, with fire. 
Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. So here's, here's how we're going to tackle these great verses. We're just going to, there's three things I'm seeing, three big themes that I just want to focus on as we go through this, this time together. The first theme is a world in turmoil. The second theme is a believer's refuge. And the third theme is the God who's in control. So let's start with the world in turmoil. So we're living in a world where nations and nature is in turmoil. That's what the psalm says. That not only nations, but also nature itself is in a turmoil. So you look at it, there's nature in turmoil. It says in the psalm, it says things like, the earth gives way, the mountains be moved, the waters roar and foam, the nation, the mountains tremble. And then it also indicates that not only that nature is in upheaval, but also nations are in upheaval. It says the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. And so we're in this world, and I mean, that's not a surprise to you. We're just, I'm just, it's just saying things that we can relate to. We're living in a world where nature and nations are in upheaval and turmoil, and it causes suffering in our earth. And that results in many questions people have. The big questions people ask is things like, how can a loving God um, allow such suffering and such natural disasters? You know, that's a, that's a constant question you hear people asking. <clears throat> Just, I was, as I was reflecting on that this week, do you know what struck me about that question? Is, so, for example, in, the tsunami hits places in Asia, like in India or in Thailand. And we ask this question, well, how can a God of love let such suffering be inflicted on such people? And do you know that the, the reality is this? The people, the majority of the people in those coastal areas in India and Thailand aren't asking that question. Because they don't understand the concept of a God of love. Because their gods are many. And they have gods that are angry gods. They have gods of, of force and power. And they have gods they're constantly having to appease. In India, where we have the orphanage in the eastern, central, eastern coast of India, you walk along the beach there, so I'm told, I haven't been yet, but and at various times in the year you'll find idols on the beach because they have all these uh, ceremonies and sacrifices going on on the beach to appease the gods of the sea. You know, so they, the idea of how can a loving God do such things or allow such things to happen is an alien concept to the people who are living there because they don't have a, even a concept of a loving God. So when we even ask the question, how can a loving God allow such things to happen, it displays the fact that you're in a culture that's been affected so much by Christianity, the concept of a God, a creator, the one, who, the one and only creator of all things whom the heavens cannot even contain, and yet he loves human beings intensely and passionately. It's only because you've been affected by that worldview, this Christian worldview that's been revealed to the world by God himself, that we have this dilemma. Now this psalm helps us tackle that dilemma or hold attention in that dilemma. doesn't necessarily answer that dilemma. We're left with that dilemma because we believe in a God of love. I guess another question we could ask, a more practical question is, where is God in trouble? So we don't always understand why it happens, but where is he when it happens? Now, you know, when your friend goes through a hard time, what they don't need for you to do is to get alongside them and give you a theory of why they're in trouble. Right? So theories of why the trouble happens actually in trouble aren't the most helpful things. 
what they really need is you to be with them while they're in it, okay? You going along and spending time with them as they're going through that trouble. That's what they need. And that's exactly what God gives us, as Sam tells us. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And you know what? At the very time when most people think God's not there, that's when God apparently is very present. He's so there. He is so right there. It's when you emotionally least feel him. He's there. The Bible's so clear in this, that God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in trouble. So I guess another question would be, well, why is nations and nature in turmoil? Why are these natural disasters happening? Why are these wars happening around us? What's the bigger, if, if God is a God of love, and then why is this all happening? And the Bible gives us a clear answer to that. Zooming out the bigger picture, the meta-narrative of the Bible is this. That there is a God who created everything. He created everything perfect and blameless and sin-free. He created human beings in his image as distinct from the animal kingdom. And yet when we were given this gift of free will, and thank God for the gift of free will, we would be robots without it. We wouldn't understand the concept of free will and love if it wasn't for that gift of free will. And yet because he gave us this risk of, uh, gift of free will, which was a risky strategy, we, in our rebellion, chose to use our free will to serve self rather than serve God. Something horrendous took place right back at the beginning. Sin came into a sin-free world. And with that sin came chaos. It's like a domino was knocked and knocked all the other dominoes into chaos. We were placed in charge of this earth, according to the Bible. We were God's ambassadors on the earth, the ones through whom God wanted to fill the earth and subdue it, the ones who were created in his image to reflect his glory. And yet we rebelled against him, and that domino cascade effect meant that the entire world was thrown into chaos and upheaval. Cracks appeared in the earth. Plates shifted. Earthquakes happened. Wars started. Murders happened. People fell into jealousy. Every child born was born with the same nature inherent from the parents. Right back to our first parents who rebelled against God. The fall of man brought a curse on the earth. It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, Cursed is the ground because of you. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. That the world itself is reacting against us. You ever found that? You try and do something and it seems like everything's reacting against you. You fix something and it breaks. It's The world is reacting against us because of the fall. It's thorns and thistles. It's what it's constantly prepared. It's, it's the result of our fallenness and rebellion against God. Everything around us is in chaos. Nations and nature in chaos. Earthquakes and, and hurricanes fundamentally are only happening because there is a world in chaos. Now, is God allowing it? Yes, he is. And can God turn great things out of these things? Yes, he can. But nevertheless, it's happening because of the fall. Now, God in his love, far from being absent in a suffering world, he's very present in a suffering world. In fact, so much so that 2,000 years ago, he entered into this suffering world and he took on the form of a human being. And the one who <coughs> he, he made man became a man. That Jesus Christ walked this earth, who is fully God and fully man. And he came with a mission. He came with an agenda. His agenda actually was to alleviate the suffering. But not necessarily in the, in the shallow way we'd like him to. His agenda was to alleviate the suffering 
And to do so, he dealt with the root cause of all suffering, the very fall that caused everything to go wrong in the first place. Jesus' agenda in coming into this earth was to deal with that, to reverse the curse. That's why he came. So when Jesus hung on that cross, just as that world reacts against us with thorns and thistles, Jesus Christ, as he hung and died on the cross, a crown of thorns was placed on his head as he took upon himself the curse. He was cursed so we could be blessed. The Bible says in the Old Testament, a cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And as Jesus Christ was nailed by his creation, they, they crucified the creator on a tree. Jesus Christ took the punishment for all our sins, took the curse that we had caused through our fallenness, took our sin. He died in our place. He took our punishment so that through Jesus Christ, you can be blessed instead of cursed, even in the midst of a world that's cursed. You can be righteous instead of a sinner, not because of primarily because of your behavior, but because of your faith in Jesus and what he's done for you. You can be declared forgiven. You can be heaven-bounds rather than hell-bounds. You can be in relationship with God rather than alienated from God. That's what the cross did for you. It means everything to you. And if the cross means nothing to you, you're a lost person and you really need him today. So if you're not with Jesus Christ, you're under a curse along with this world and you are lost forever. So don't walk any more days, don't live any more moments without yielding your entire future to God. Do it today. Give him your everything. And Jesus who died, death couldn't hold him. We resurrected. Some people say, I'm not so sure about this resurrection of Jesus thing. You think, wait a minute. For God not to resurrect? Come on. That would be crazy. Of course he resurrected. Of course, death could not hold him. Had no rights or authority over him. First man alive, death had no authority over. Because he had no sin. He had no legal rights, no claim upon him. Death could hold. So Jesus rose again from the dead, conquering Satan, sin and death. Your arch enemies takes away the curse and deals not only with suffering, but the root cause of suffering so that you can be blessed in the middle of a cursed world. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that you, uh, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Oh yeah. Yay. He's so good. So that's your place of safety. It's him. So where do you turn in time of need? So that's the answer, but where do we turn? There was a guy one day, he, he slipped and fell down a cliff and he managed to grab hold of a branch and as he's hanging there, he hadn't really thought about God much in his life at all. But in that moment, he started thinking about God. It's funny how people get all religious when they're about to die. Right? So, oh, okay, God, help me, help me. And, and a voice comes and says, I am here. How can I help? He says, save me, save me. And God says, do you trust me? And he says, yes, okay, I'll trust you. And he said, okay then, let go. And he thought for a moment and said, is there anyone else there? Is there anyone else there? And that's what we do. We, we, turn, we, we are in these troubles and following God, you know, we know there's implications in turning to God. So what we do is we turn to other things. So where do you turn when you're in time of need? Do you turn to gambling? You're, you're in trouble times, so you just turn. And do you know what? You lose yourself. It's a, you, know, you know it's a fantasy land. You know it's a fantasy world, but you turn to gambling. You immerse yourself in it because of the thrills. It gets chemicals going through your system. And for a while, you can just switch off to the stuff that's going on in the world. Do you turn there rather than God? Or do you turn, turn to porn? 
and you're online and no one's looking and you're there and you're in the secretive place. No one else knows what you're, and you're having all these sexual fantasies and all these chemicals running around your body and you're getting this temporal relief, even though you have guilt after, in that time you can switch off from the troubles you're facing. Or do you turn to alcohol so that you just bury your sorrows in, in alcohol and you just turn to there instead of actually dealing with the root issue of all satisfaction, relationship with God? Or do you turn to people and you find people as your source in trouble and they become your crutch? Or even good relationships? It doesn't need to be evil for it to be evil. Idols can be just normal people or things or hobbies. It doesn't have to be sex or drugs or rock and roll. You see, we need to turn to God. God, the source of all. When we turn to God, the source of all, and truly turn to God, the source of all, then we have the source and the power to overcome the other stuff that so often holds us back. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Okay, so there's the world in turmoil. Nature and nations are in turmoil because of the curse. Jesus is coming dealt with the curse. So then we have the believer's refuge. Many people believe that this psalm, many commentators would say and uh, that they, they think this psalm was written at the time or even by Hezekiah, one of the kings of Judah. Now, so, so some of the psalms, it clearly says a psalm of David's or a psalm of Moses or you know, a psalm of Asaph or etc, etc. But some of the psalms are left with no author's name. Some of them it says they're written for the sons of Korah who were the song leaders, but it doesn't mean that sons of Korah wrote it. The question mark is over this psalm. Who wrote this psalm? And many credible commentators believe that Hezekiah, king of Judah, as found in Second Kings in the Old Testament, could well have been uh, the author of this psalm. So, okay, we don't know if that's exactly the case or not, but let's say it was. And even if it wasn't, Hezekiah's life acts as a phenomenal illustration of the psalm. The reason commentators think this is probably Hezekiah who wrote this it's because the Psalms so resemble some of the incidents in Hezekiah's life, one particular incident, one particular turmoil that he was going through. So I can buy it. I can say, well, it probably was Hezekiah. But whether it was or wasn't, Hezekiah's life is a fantastic example of it. Let me tell you about Hezekiah. Now, in your own time, you want to get your Bibles out and read about Hezekiah. It's an amazing account. Hezekiah, found in 2 Kings 18 and 19, also referred to in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37, and a few other places in Isaiah. Hezekiah lived around about 700 years before Christ. And he was a good king. He was a really good king. At that time, there was a history of rebellion among the kings of Israel. Israel, by this time, had divided, and it was the Israelite kingdom and the kingdom of Judah. The Israelites predominantly had typically just turned totally away from God and given themselves over to idol worship. The kingdom of Judah... Uh, typically had kings who followed God, although up until Hezekiah there had been a few who had wandered away from God. And as a result, Judah was in a bad situation. Hezekiah came king, and he brought all these reforms. He dealt with all the idolatry in the nation. He pulled down the false gods and the, and the various uh, places of worship that people went for pagan worship. And he, he went around and ransacked all these places, and he reestablished the worship of the true God in Judah. So he was one of the good guys. It says about Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18, verse 5 to 6, it says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among the kings of Judah. 
either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. Now, the incident that people think this psalm was written in response to was an invasion by the kingdom of Assyria. Now, the Assyrians, just before this moment, had invaded Israel. Remember I said Israel had divided into Judah and Israel? The Syrians had invaded Israel and they had besieged Samaria, the capital city of Israel, for three years. In that siege, you can imagine there was starvation in the city because there's no food supplies getting in or out. People were dying. It was a horrendous place to be. And eventually, at the end of that siege, they conquered Israel and they took the Israelites away from Samaria into captivity uh, in, in their homelands. So the king of Assyria had already ransacked Israel. Now you can imagine how over here Hezekiah was feeling because he realized he was a target. And sure enough, not long after the ransacking of Samaria, the Assyrian armies in all their might, and they were a mighty army, a force to be reckoned with, a brutal, an incredibly brutal army. In fact, there's, in the, I think it's the British Museum down in London, there's a, there's a big uh, stone plate that was in one of the Assyrian palaces. And it's of Assyrian military soldiers uh, skinning alive some of their captives. This is like their wallpaper. These guys were hardcore. They had that as their wallpaper, right? So they were nuts. They were like, they were like leaders, these guys. So the Assyrian armies, and they arrived at Jerusalem's doors, and they were threatening Jerusalem. And the field commander of the Assyrian army stands before the gates of Jerusalem. The whole place was shut up and closed. All the gates were shut. All the soldiers were around the ramparts. And the Assyrian military commander, with his army beside him, stood in front of the gates of Jerusalem and shouted up in the language that all the people could understand and started taunting Israel. He started saying things like this, don't trust in your allies, they can't save you in this moment. He said things like this, don't trust your king Hezekiah, don't let him deceive you, don't give, let him give you any hope in this moment, we're going to conquer you. They said things like this, they said that there's been no other God who has been able to rescue any city from us. And you know what? They were right. All the cities had fallen one after the other to the Syrian army. It was a pretty weighty argument. And then they said, don't let Hezekiah deceive you into thinking that your God will deliver you. And then furthermore, he went, they went on, and it's all contradictions, but then they went on and said, and it was actually your God who sent us to beat you anyway. Right? So full of contradictions. So this was the taunts of this enemy. Have you ever had those taunts in your head? I mean... You, Read the weight of those arguments in Second Kings. I, I, when I read those, I, I see the weight of it. I hear the intimidation of it all. And you can imagine being in Jerusalem with a, a successful army on your doorstep who had a track record of ransacking and skinning alive and killing and destroying nations. They're right at your doorstep. Imagine how you'd have felt. And you're hearing those words. And you know what? Some of you in life are like that. You're hearing accusations. You're hearing strong arguments against you. Very strong arguments. You have an enemy of your souls. He's called Satan. He's called the devil. The, the devil in Greek is diabolos. It means slanderer. He loves nothing more than to slander you. He's also called the accuser. And he constantly accuses you and tells you what you're not and how you won't and how it won't work. He tells you, oh, what you've tried before won't work this time. He tells you, he gives you every reason why you're going to have your downfall. And you hear those taunts and it's so strong. And do you know what the thing is? The problem with his arguments are this. They're not just random arguments. You see a track record of proof to what he's saying. 
and your emotions even confirm it. So it's so hard. And you're hearing these taunts. And this is exactly the situation Hezekiah was in. But what Hezekiah did in that moment is he said he turned to God. Hearing those things, he ripped his garments. He went straight to the temple in the center of Jerusalem. And he got on his knees before God. And he called out for God's help and deliverance. He also sent word to the famous prophet Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is in the Bible. Sent word to the prophet Isaiah and said, can you seek God and see what God is saying? And Isaiah comes back with a prophecy saying that this army will not conquer Jerusalem. You're going to be safe. And so the situation turns around. The army hears news of uh, another military attack on their homelands. So they start to back off from Jerusalem's walls in line with Isaiah's prophecy. But then just as they were about to do that retreat, they send a letter to King Hezekiah. And the letter, in the letter, it's, it spells out very clearly in no uncertain terms that do not think you have escaped. We will ransack the city. You will not escape. You will be destroyed. And it, it, Very clear. And what does Hezekiah do? It says in 2 Kings 19.14, Hezekiah received the letters from the messengers and he read it. And he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. He spread it out before the Lord. Do you know, I think that's what you've got to learn to do in life. You take all that stuff, all that accusation, don't carry it. Don't meditate on it. Don't mull it over and rehearse it through and add to it. Take it like a letter and spread it out before the Lord. Take some time before you get into trying fixing it. Because what we often do is we get that kind of stuff and we say, right, what can I do to fix it? And you're chasing your tail and you're all striving in this nations and nature that's in turmoil. And here we are, we're in turmoil because we're trying to fix it all. But Hezekiah spread it out before the Lord. It says in Philippians 4 verse 5, The Lord is near. God is a what in trouble? He's a very present help in trouble. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, in prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, presents your request to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then at that point, as Hezekiah was laying out his, he put it out before God, just like we should do on a daily basis, right, God, I've got this. Put it out before him. As he did that, Isaiah the prophet brought a strong prophecy, and you can find it recorded in Kings and in Isaiah, a strong prophecy about how devastated Assyria would become. And it says, it's an incredible thing, God intervened exactly as Isaiah the prophet said he would. Second Kings 19 is recorded, verse 35. An historic event, folks. God did this. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And when people got up in the morning, the next morning, they were all dead bodies. So Shennacherib, the king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day when he was worshipping in the temple of his god, isn't that ironic? Isn't it crazy? Having seen that, 185,000 dead by the true God. He then continues, with no fear of God, to worship in the temple of his god, Nisroch. I mean, he's even got a kind of rubbishy name, Nisroch. And his sons, uh, Adramalek and Shirzer, do not trust your sons if they're called these names, killed him with the sword. It's, it's, it's such a weighty moment where, where 
It looked like everything was going to go wrong. It looked like they were going to just capitulate just like Samaria had. It lo- they knew the reputation of this Assyrian army. And then he put it before God. He laid it out before God. The prophecy came. Then God bought, fought the battle, not Hezekiah. And 185,000 people in one night were killed in the enemy's camp. I mean, that sort of stuff. You imagine the news of that on BBC News. That's huge scale. It says in verse 5 of, of the psalm we're reading, it says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. Just like that morning when they woke up and they saw, wow, God has helped us. The enemies have been conquered. It reminds me of you know, Lord of the Rings, the Battle of, Battle of Helm's Deep, when they've been fighting those orcs and the Urukais and the Assyrians all night. And then in the morning, you know, they're, they're kind of, a, it looks like everything's going to go wrong. And in the morning, the light comes and they remember the words of, of um, Gandalf and they ride out and they instantly the battle turns. So I think that's what the Psalms may be referring to. It's either this situation in Hezekiah's life or a similar situation where nations were in turmoil, where nature itself was in turmoil and they needed God to intervene. You know, this is a famous Psalm and many, actually many battles have been fought as soldiers have quoted the Psalm on their way into battle. It's a famous psalm. You find soldiers marching into battle quoting Psalm 46. History shows us. It shows the Germans quoting this as they were going to fight the French. It shows the Swedes quoting this as they were going to fight the Germans. It shows the Spaniards quoting this as they were going to fight the Moors. It shows the English quoting it as they were going to fight the Spanish. But what the soldiers were doing was wrong because they were inaccurate in their application of the psalm. Because God does not ally himself with national armies. Now, he did at one point in history ally himself with, an, with the nation of Israel. At a one point, in, and it was an important, it still is an important nation, but he allied himself and he became their God for the purpose of a one-time event of the coming of the Messiah into the world that was to be born in the Israelite line. But today, God does not ally himself predominantly with any nation, Therefore, we would be wrong to say that God, uh, that the God of Jacob is our refuge, or, or we could say it in light of you know God, the God of Britain is our refuge. You know, you, you, could, you can apply it in that way. But what it applies to today is to God's people, the church. Throughout the Psalm, if you look at the Psalm, it's, it doesn't often speak about I, it's or, or me. It's it's our or we. That's how the Psalm's written. Here's some verses from it. God is our refuge and strength, verse 1. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains will be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the city of God. Again, it's, it's, it's talking for those people at that time. It might have been Hezekiah talking about Jerusalem, talking about Israel, talking about the focal point of God's activities on planet earth. The holy, his holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. This is God's people. She will not be moved. God will help her. What? Who's her? Jerusalem. That's Israel. When the morning dawns, verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. You see, the truth is that God is everywhere. So there was, there was a kid one day talking to 
uh, his mum, and he says, Mum, I heard that God's everywhere. Does that mean God's in the sky? And mum said, that's right, son, God's in the sky. And does that mean that God's in Africa just now? And he said, that's correct. God's in Africa right now. And does that mean that God's upstairs? That's right, God's upstairs. And the kids are holding a glass of lemonade and said, is God in my glass of lemonade? She said, I guess God's in the glass of lemonade. And he went, gotcha. As he put his hand over the glass of lemonade. Um, Now, he had misunderstood. We laugh because he had misunderstood omnipresence. But you need to understand that while God is everywhere, he is also somewhere in particular. I know that made a lot of sense. But I think that's what I see in the Bible. God is everywhere. He is. But he's also especially somewhere. In the Bible, he's very clearly among his people. Just as he is in Africa, and just as he is in the North Pole, and just as he is on Pluto, he's everywhere, but he was especially among his people. In the Old Testament, he was specifically resident in Jerusalem. But today, he is resident not in Jerusalem, although he is everywhere, and though it is special, he is specially resident among his people called the church. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 16 to 17. We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Today, that's us. So, those armies, those Germans as they're going to fight the, fight the French and the Spanish as they were going to fight against other people. So they misapplied this psalm. However, we can legitimately say this psalm with a correct application. This is psalm about us. For the church of Jesus Christ, God's people on earth, this is our psalm. We can say that God is our place of safety in a world where nature and nations are in turmoil and upheaval. And, but I have to just make this really clear. My security is not in church. Just like Hezekiah's security was not in the walls of Jerusalem. Church itself was not, it was the fact that God was there was his security. And that's really important. So your security, I, I believe the safest place you can be on planet earth is by being plugged into a local church under God. That's safe. But, you know, don't, don't let me be your security. Uh, the pastor, I, I find great security and stability from my pastor or from the leadership team here. Don't find security. I, I, don't trust me. I don't even trust me. I don't. I don't even place, I trust myself a little bit, but I trust myself. I know how much I don't trust myself as well. I'm so fickle. I'm so all over the place. I don't trust myself all the time. So why would you want to trust me when I don't even trust me? Trust God. Any security or strength you see in me or in the leadership of the church is purely and solely because we trust God. Just like you should trust God. So don't trust us. You trust God. God's is our fortress. It says in, it says this in the Psalm. God is our fortress. It says that 16 times in all the Psalms, but twice especially in this Psalm. God is our fortress. He's the walls around us. Hezekiah could have said that even though he was in a fortified city. He knew the fortified city would mean nothing against the Assyrian army. He knew that. Fortified city after fortified city had fallen to the Assyrians. And yet God was his fortress. Let God be your fortress. I don't care how strong 
your pension is for your retirement. Let God be your fortress. I don't care how secure you think your job is. Let God, not your job, be your fortress. I don't mind how much savings you've got in your bank. Let God, not your savings, be your fortress. I don't care how fit and healthy you think you are or how much exercise you put in or how healthy a diet you have. Let God be your fortress and your stability in life. Otherwise, we are all on rocky turf. It says in verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. You see, in a besieged city, the sure way to defeat a besieged city was to cut off their water supply. If they had water, they could live for a long time. But if they could cut off the water supply to the besieged city. But the Bible says about our city, the church, God's people, that we have a river whose streams make glad the city of God. In other words, there is a secret source among us. He's called God. And he is the source of our supply even in the toughest times. So first of all, we see a world in turmoil. Secondly, we see the believer's refuge. And then finally, we see the God who's in control. It says in verses 9 to 10, He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Notice how the psalm changes there. It becomes a prophecy. It becomes God speaking. You see that? It goes from being a description of who God is. Then all of a sudden, it's quotations. God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in all the nations of the earth. <clears throat> the truth is this. God is in control in crisis. You know, how was it that the apostle Peter, the night before his potential public execution, you can read about it in the book of Acts. You know, he had just seen James, his colleague, being publicly beheaded by under Herod. Just days before. And now he was being brought out under Herod's, and the anticipation, it was very clear, the exact same was going to happen to him. That was, that's what was expected. How was it that that night, he was able to be fast asleep between the guards? I mean, like, sleeping like a baby. It's quite incredible, isn't it? We would have been just the same. So much so that when the angel came to rescue him, he had to to kind of punch him, to wake him up. Wake up! Shh! Just trying to sleep here. No, the angel actually had a bit of a job to wake the guy up because he was so in deep sleep. You know? I just love that. Why could you? Because be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. God is so securely on his throne. He is so securely on his throne. Nothing will shake him off his throne. Nothing can thwart his plan. God is in control, he is ultimate, he is sovereign, and he can be absolutely trusted. And that's the source of you being able to say, I'm going to be still. I love what it says in Isaiah 26.3, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. You want perfect peace? Keep your mind on him, because you trust in him. Be still and know that he is God. He'll be exalted in the nations. You see Jesus in the boat in the middle of the storm with his disciples. And the, the, the disciples were fishermen. They knew storms. They knew how to handle a boat in storms. And yet they thought they were going to drown. This was a serious storm. And there's Jesus 
fast asleep in the stern of the boat. <laughs> I just love that. Oh, he's so cool. He's so cool. So fast asleep, just didn't flinch. They had to wake him up. And they say, do you not care that we're drowning? <laughs> and he just stands up and says, be still. And the wind and the waves died down. The nature that was in turmoil became still. And everything was calm. You see, it's all to do with your perspective. It's all to do with where your trust is. And I find that as we have faith in our God, that our God intervenes in our lives. That our God who's on the throne, just like with Hezekiah, he's, he brought it all to God in those moments. Even when the, the soldiers were on the ramparts and they were hearing the taunts from the Assyrian army, Hezekiah had said to the soldiers, shh, say nothing. Don't say anything. Be still. Because, folks, we can't, in those moments when the enemy comes against us, when the attack comes on our minds, everything within us is wanting to go panic modes and try and fix it or scream out or do something. God says, be still. Walk with confidence in those days because that's the way that God intervenes for us. I think what I see in the, in the psalm is also overtones of a bigger summing up of history. You know, history began with when God created the world. God who's eternally existed before that, but our history began at the creation. Now we know that things went wrong at the fall, whenever that was. And we know that sin came into the world and chaos came into the world and nature and nations were in turmoil. But we also know that God will sum all that up with a great summary, a great conclusion to everything. It's very clearly described in Matthew's Gospel, in in Thessalonians, in the book of Revelation. Very clear that Jesus Christ will return. There will be an end. Let me read you an excerpt from that because it talks about nations and nature and turmoil and how we can be still that God, and knowing that God will be exalted. Matthew 24, 6, Jesus said, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed, for these things must happen, and the end is still to come. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes as there's nature nations and nature in turmoil. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. He's talking about believers in Jesus. And that's historically the case. At that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Skipping ahead to verse twelve Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Hang in there. Stand firm to the end. Be still. Know that he is God. Hang in there. Notice it says, these are the beginning of birth pains. Jesus is talking about the nations in upheaval, political upheaval, wars and rumors of wars, natural upheaval, earthquakes, sun being darkened, things being shaken. You know, and these are the natural and nations upheaval. And yet, he says, these are the beginning of the birth pains. Now, interestingly, birth pains isn't signifying the ends. Birth pains signifies the beginning. Birth pains signify a birth. And what's interesting is when Jesus speaks about the end, he's actually speaking about a new beginning, a resurrection, a new earth. You see, I believe the world will come to an end. But then I believe it will be resurrected. How that will happen? Will it be a refurbished planet? I think so. 
It says in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. There's an analogy of the church there, the bride, the new Jerusalem. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among people. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old things, the old order of things passed away. He who is seated on the throne says, I'm making everything new. That's a wonderful set of verses. It says that the dwelling of God will come and be with us. We often think of heaven as us going to be with him in his place. But apparently the ultimate heaven will be heaven and earth, where God comes to be with us in our place. The earth is the domain of man, and there will be a resurrected heaven and a resurrected earth, and we will live in resurrected bodies serving a resurrected Lord on a resurrected earth forever. God says, be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted in the nations. God will have his dominion. God will be recognized. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So be still. Make time to be still. You need that. I remember as a kid taking time some evenings, just looking up at the stars. You ever have those moments where you actually, in the middle of everything, you actually, you actually stop and you look and then you really think and you look at it and you say, that's really big. And you realize you're really small and you realize it's a design and you realize he's great and you realize how big eternity is. You ever had those moments? They're good moments. They're moments of great perspective. I remember sitting with my Bible under a tree in Wales up on a hillside. I remember it distinctly. I was about 19 years old. And I remember my life changed under that tree as I read the Bible, as I took time out of everything to be still and to really think. And I heard God calling me into ministry. We wouldn't be talking today if that tree and that Bible and me taking time to be still, that moment hadn't happened. You understand that I start my day that way. I try and start my day by getting up and just being still and knowing that he's God. Before my day floods in and battles for the focus of my minds. Because the day very quickly rushes in and fills your minds. Before all that happens, maybe I suggest learn to be still. And maybe at various points in the day, learn to be still. Give yourself a fighting chance at life. And be still and know that he's God. Create time in your life to be still and know that he's God. And then your perspective will be such, your faith will arise, and God will help you. Satan hates people being still. He wants the television on. He wants you to have lots of hobbies. He wants your life to be so full that you get, don't get a chance to think about the things that really count and let those moments where God can speak. Because being still opens up the way for God to speak, just like Isaiah brought the word of the Lord in a moment of being still before God. Learn to be still. Learn to get God's perspective. In the North Atlantic, you know, when there's huge, ferocious storms way back up, up north. And you, storms that would take huge 
ocean-going vessels and just throw them around like they're toys. And yet, up in the North Atlantic, you have these vast icebergs. And the vast icebergs, they seem completely unaffected by the turbulent storms and the winds and the waves and the upheaval of nature. Why? Because uh, only one-ninth of their mass is above the water. The rest of their mass is under the water where there is a deep calm. And therefore, they, they, they go effortlessly through the most treacherous North Atlantic storm that would throw ships around. And they're unaffected because they've got their source in the depths. And God wants us to be people who walk knowing that he is God. Where can I find peace and safety on earth? In an earth where nature and nations are in turmoil? The truth is that peace and safety is not found in the absence of danger, but rather in the presence of God. Let's pray.